The Lord be with you. It is good to be with you this morning. Um, today, as, as I shared last week, we are switching gears. Uh, just uh, for a little bit, we're going to be talking about preaching and proclaiming Christ in context, right? So we were last week talking about the work of Jesus Christ, and we'll return to that conversation next week. But it's quite appropriate that in the context of talking about the work of Jesus Christ, we're uh, talking about proclaiming Christ in context. So right in the middle of that. And um, Catherine has some experiences and a knowledge that I do not. So I asked her and invited her to share this week. So I will turn things over to her. Catherine? Oh, <laughs> so I'm very happy to be here with you guys today. Um, so I would like to open us in prayer before we start anything else. So if you would pray with me, please. Holy God, thank you for bringing us together this morning to contemplate your truth in this world. Lord, fill this room with patience and understanding as we challenge ourselves to consider the power of your gospel through the perspective of our neighbors. We pray that you open our hearts and our minds to hear your voice and to know you better. Amen. Okay, so as Pastor Michael mentioned, um, today is about proclaiming Christ in context. So um, if you would look at your little handout, we're going to start on the page with the passage from Matthew. And this is just my own brief summary of what this really means. So to proclaim Christ in context is about a person's experience how a person's experiences of life affect how they recognize, relate to, and proclaim the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is incredible and marvelous in that it speaks to specific people as well as offers a universal message of love, hope, peace, and joy to all people, all nations, all times, all contexts. Learning about the theologies of other cultures or groups of people is not meant to divide us as believers. Rather, they are meant to make us sensitive to whom our own theologies include or exclude, as well as welcome us into solidarity with them as we see the universality of the gospel through the eyes of our beloved neighbors. So we can talk about... The, these contextual theologies in a lot of ways. Contextual theology can mean anything from looking at scripture specifically in the time and place as it was written. Um, so if we look at, at 30 CE, common era, right? The days of Jesus, what was this really like? Versus reading it today. That's a totally separate contextual theologies. Yet these are both contextual theologies of orthodox theology. Throughout all time, people have been considering, what did this mean originally, and what does this mean to us today? What did Jesus mean then? What, did Jesus might, what would Jesus mean to us now? So that is the baseline for contextual theology. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what contextual theology does and does not do. So um, contextual theologies are not meant to undermine other theologies. Um, this does not mean that 
if you, if you think about one context, you can't think about another, right? They are not mutually exclusive. Contextual theologies strengthen the holes of other theologies because I don't believe that there is any one theology that represents all truth and understanding of God because God is a mystery. <laughs> and so it is not, I don't think it's possible for any theology to help, to help us understand everything that there is to know about God. Um, so contextual theologies do not silence differing opinions. So this is the same kind of thing. They're not mutually exclusive. To elevate one voice does not silence another. Um, contextual theologies are meant to empower people to proclaim the gospel from their lived experience. And, and this is a way that this is something that highlights the different voices of the cloud of witnesses. Um, and, and this cloud of witnesses is, is hundreds of thousands of years old and is everywhere from northern Africa to Syria to Jerusalem, right? And today, even broader to all walks of life and everywhere on the earth. Um, and the final thing is that contextual theologies are not meant to divide us. Um, they are meant to enrich our community as believers, they are made to help us through compassion to consider the perspectives of our neighbors and to grow in relationship to them and to the God who, who made them, um, as well as ourselves. So the thing I'd like to start to do before we get into scripture is to consider what our own contextual theologies are. So please flip the page over, and we're going to talk about what, is, what your own context is. Um, and the sociological term for these questions is that we are defining our social location. Um, social location is a consideration of one's demographic information as it relates to their social context, privilege, mobility, etc. Um, and so if you would like to quickly just kind of go through these questions. Um, we're going to go through geographic location, socioeconomic class, level of education, your gender and sex, your sexual orientation, race or ethnicity, ableness, age, language, and then who do you love? So these are some of the main social location options. And underneath those, I give some, some more specific questions if you're wondering what, the, what this really means. Um, there's no right or wrong answers to these. I'm not going to come around and check. Um, but just to help you think about where you come from um, and how, and then we'll start to talk about how this might affect the way that we relate to and know Jesus Christ. The final note that I'm going to give is at the very bottom of the page, and that is that there is no good or bad social location. Um, there are so many variables, and so there is no one label that will represent your social location um, because our social location is also changing. Like age is one of these, right? So as your age changes, your social location will change. So, um, th so this is an ongoing process. Um, and this exercise is simply to help us consider how our place in society may affect the way that we live, relate to one another, and relate to God. So take a couple minutes to fill this out. We're good? Does anyone have any questions about, about this list? Does anyone have anything that they'd like to share about writing down these different answers?
Yeah. I'll just say that this discussion seems pretty timely for me because I'm going to Egypt next mm. week with uh, Pastor Dave. Wow. And the people that we're going to that would answer these questions would answer them completely differently. Yeah. So I'm just very interested in where you're going with this. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, well, thank you. So um, a lot of these are standard, just demographic questions, right? The one at the very end is one that I added, which is who do you love? Because not only is it where do we come from and who are we, but part of contextual theology and being a community of believers it involves this responsibility that we have to consider not only who Jesus is to us, but who is Jesus to our neighbor. To say that we love our neighbors is to consider, to consider life from their perspective, from their eyes. And so if we think about who are all the people that we love, how might they answer these questions, exactly like what Nancy Irving said, um, that helps us to open ourselves up to exploring their contextual theologies. It might open up truths that we might not have considered otherwise. Um, and yet, at the same time, it does not diminish the universality of the gospel, that all of us have access to the truth and beauty and love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, that being said, we're going to start and orient ourselves towards scripture. So if you flip the page back over, we're going to keep in mind all of the answers that you wrote for your own social location, for your own context, and we're going to read this short passage um, about the birth of Jesus uh, according to Matthew. Um, and as you, as you read it, I encourage you to take um, highlighters or whatever writing utensil you have there, and as you go along, things that stand out to you, what are the words that resonate with you, uh, and just underline those. Can I, does anyone want to offer to read this aloud for us? Thank you. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as a wife, but had no marital, marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus.
All right, you probably noticed that this is going to be a more conversational day. So, <laughs> what are some of the things that you underlined? Yes. That's fascinating. So that... Can you say that again? I didn't even hear that. Could you say that one more? He, he took her as a wife after he's listed as a husband. I guess yeah. I said it reverse, but he was a husband first, and then he takes her. So that's a really interesting detail, yeah. What else did you underline? Before they lived together, okay. A public disgrace, okay. Yeah. Son. His people. His people. Wife. Yes, wife. Did anyone underline Emmanuel? Yeah. So God with us. Okay, so keep this in mind. Um, each We're going to go through and we're going to underline this and mark this in a different way. We're going to read the same passage many times. So, um, so each time that we mark this, we're going to use a different, a different pen. So um, perhaps <laughs> what you have marked represents your contextual, your context, where you're coming from right now. And maybe just in this very moment, it represents what you're thinking of. Um, but we're going to look and compare as we go um, what might stand out as we consider these different contextual theologies. So um, we're going to cover three main contextual theologies today. Um, there are dozens. There are so many. If you think of any place, time, um, and, and people, they have a contextual theology. But today we're going to focus on Latin American Christology and liberation theology. Um, we'll talk about feminist theology as well as womanism and uh, the Mujerista movement um, and queer theology. So I want to put out a little disclaimer that today is not meant to discuss the validity of any of these, but is really just to explore. It's about being curious. And so if you have questions about these, I am happy to explore that with you. Um, but I am not going to say whether one is, is a, whether it's a good theology or a bad theology. Um, that is for your own discernment. Um, but, but yes, for this moment, for this time, we're just exploring and being curious. So the first one we're going to talk about is Latin American Christology. This means um, how do people perceive Christ in Latin America? Now, this is also going to vary but depending on the country. However, there is a relatively unified Christology in that um, it is in Latin America so much is rooted in the, in the lived experience of people in Latin America. And that it is through that that they see Christ. Um, so, and, and through that came liberation theology, um, which is the idea that, um, God is in solidarity with the poor and that, that Christ came in order to liberate the poor and the oppressed. 
Um, and we'll go in more into that in just a moment. Some, head, some leaders in this liberation theology and, and Latin American Christology include Gustavo Gutierrez, um, John Sobrino, uh, Leonardo Baff, uh, Jose Miguel Bonino, and Juan Luis Segundo. If you want any of these names, I'm more than happy to share them with you. I should have put them on your handout, but um, I didn't do that. <laughs> um, so part of Latin American Christology is that it must attend to the concrete realities of life in Latin America in which the biblical message is read and heard. Um, and that's a quote from uh, McGlory, which is the book that uh, Michael Wallace has been using throughout this series. Um, and so what does this really mean? What is the, what is that context? Um, unfortunately, this really refers to dehumanizing poverty that is pervasive throughout Latin America. Um, and it affirms that God is in, that God in Christ enters into solidarity with the poor. It focuses on the fact that Jesus was a peasant um, that Jesus was born into a poor family, that Jesus suffered along with people, that he went to the poor and he ate with them and he healed them and he did these things and he wasn't afraid of, of the dirt of their lives. Um, and so to them, that is the liberating message, that God comes to them, lives with them, and embraces them. Um, and so it's also this understanding of Scripture that God has a special preference for the poor. This is often where people go, oh no, this is bad and offensive to me, but this is not a, a special preference to the poor and that, it, that God rejects those who have money and comfort and wealth, but the idea that God especially came to help the poor because the world has rejected them. And so is this idea that the more not... So some people say this as the more you are hurt and oppressed and rejected, the more God loves you. But if you think about it, and that can be used in dangerous ways. This is one of the dangers of liberation theology. However, if you think about it through the context of the Beatitudes, of blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are these people, is saying that society has forgotten this long list of people, and yet God does not forget them. And yet God is with them, that God is in solidarity with them, and that in that is your freedom, in that is your liberation, and that is your peace and your hope and your love. And that's what liberation theology is really all about. Um, and so they see Jesus as a social activist um, who is tackling not just individual people, but is tackling the unjust systems of when of the day that Jesus walked on earth and today the the systems that continue to to persist in our world so that could be unjust econo uh, economies it could be governments it could be um the religious elites right the these religious institutions that are still crippling and and tainting the gospel and the purity of what the gospel is meant to be um and for liberation theologists it is to free people. It is to free them from their oppression. Um, another big aspect of Latin American Christology is the mestizo identity. So um, mestizo is a term that, it, it, well, it's a Spanish term, <laughs> but is this, um, it means mixed. Um, and so a mestizo person has both uh, 
Spaniard, so European heritage, and indigenous heritage. Um, and these are people that would be considered mestizo. The majority of people in Mexico are mestizo. The majority of people in Latin America are mestizo because of their history of, um, of colonization. Um, from the European Spaniards. So they look at this, uh, they use this mestizo identity, um, which is this, this conflict of, like, I, of being someone who both represents the oppressor and the oppressed, and yet somehow this, they live holding this tension. Um, and they see Jesus as that. They see a mestizo identity in Jesus. When I read this, I was like, I have never considered Jesus as mestizo. Right? Jesus, is, he doesn't have the same colonial history. And yet, and yet the more I read it, the more I was like, there's some truth in this. That, that there is this huge tension between being divine and being human. That this is what, what Orthodox theologians have wrestled with from the time that Jesus said, I am, I am the son of man and I am the son of God in the same gospel. You know, and so and so, for Latin American Christologies, this isn't the same wrestling. This to them is looking into Jesus and seeing themselves. It's looking into Jesus and saying, "You know what it is to have these kinds of of to live in tension with yourself, um, of of being told that these two things cannot coexist, and yet somehow they do." Now, I think that being both divine and human is a little, um, is different than being both European and indigenous. I'm not saying that these are equivalent, um, but, but that it is a really, it, it is a perspective that I would not have had had I not read about this Latin American Christology. So, um, and this, this mestizo identity comes from theologian um, Virgilio Elizondo, um, and he really, he really develops this concept of the mestizo identity. Um, and he goes even f more beyond the human and divine and into um, Jesus' present day and his um, Galilean identity. So there's a lot that he was, wor that he was working through in that. Um, a big part of liberation theology is also in Jesus' crucifixion. Um, so there are other theological trains that believe that Jesus would have been crucified, or that Jesus would have died no matter what, that that was part of what Jesus came for, it was a part of the deal all along, it was predestined, there are lots of those kinds of thoughts. In liberation theology, it's completely to the contrary. For liberation theology, humans and, and human society has 100% of the blame for crucifying Jesus. It is because of our corruption, because of our sin, because of our pains that we crucified the one who came to save us, free us, redeem us. Um, and so McGlory says um, Jesus was killed as a consequence of his scandalous message and ministry, not, be not because it was demanded by God as taught by some theories of atonement, um, but the cross was not necessary to change God's attitude towards human beings. Rather, it was the culmination of life totally dedicated to God and God's reign. One example of this is um, from 
a my pastor in Mexico, who is actually a refugee from the from El Salvador, that he grew up during the Civil War, and he, his family fled to Mexico um, during the height of that conflict. Um, and his uncle was actually he was killed during the Civil War. He was a pastor, and in El Salvador, uh, as well as Oscar Romero, who was the Archbishop of um, of El Salvador who was assassinated, um, it was considered common. There was significant conflict between um, the church and the government in El Salvador during the Civil War. And so to say that um, you, to die for one's dedication to God and the kingdom of God was literal. And so liberation theology has a weight to it of these words are, are liberating and these words are dangerous. And we have to hold also that intention. Um, whereas if we said, are you prepared to die for the kingdom of God? We might think of that much more metaphorically in this context. But in others, in significant oppression, um, it takes on a different weight. Does anyone have questions about what I've mentioned about Latin American Christology and liberation theology? Yes. It sounds like there's, in my sense, sort of a confusion between liberation theology. You're, you're saying that the basis of it is liberating the poor from their spiritual situation. Mm. And yet, when I think of this or when I hear this, I think of it as being confused with liberating the poor from their uh, financial situation or their poor situation. And I can see where that's led to a lot of the problems down there with the socialistic type uh, pressures, I should call it. Yeah, so like I mentioned at the beginning, every theology has dangers. Any theology can be misused, misrepresented, can manipulate people, right? No theology is immune from this potential. But liberate, you're, you're right. In liberation theology, there it is easy to preach a prosperity gospel. It is easy to say, if you pray in this way, God will keep you from being poor. <laughs> and, and we see time and time again that that's not that that is not a true gospel. That is a false gospel. Um, so really, the, the liberation um, it is more spiritual. And there's a, a big emphasis on, on eschatology and, and not a today is the kingdom of God, but later is the kingdom of God. And you will be freed from the chains of this life and you will live at peace and one with the rest of humanity, and you will no longer know suffering, and every tear will be wiped from your eye. And that is really, a, a, that is the take-home message from liberation theology, that this world is so broken, but that the next life will be so good. Um, and that God is with you both here in your suffering and then in your joy. So, but obviously there is a range um, the, I'm giving you a very quick summary. That was 15 minutes of liberation theology, <laughs> right? Um, but yes, that's absolutely a danger. 
So now, thinking about all of that, I know I just flooded your brain with all of this, um, but we're going to go back and we're going to reread this, this, um, the infancy gospel according to Matthew. And this time, I would like for you to mark the, mark the portions, uh, underline, circle, question mark, parts that might, might resonate according to liberation theology, or that might be problematic according to liberation theology. Um, and we'll come together and we'll talk about that in a moment. have made some marks. What are the things that you underlined? Yeah. Found to be with child, because those who are not in higher socioeconomic classes tend to not have as much access to plan or choose when they become pregnant. Mm. That's huge. Absolutely. From the Holy Spirit, so it leads towards that um, mestizo, 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 that you talked about. Yes, absolutely. I find that the call from the angel is interesting. That do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife in that it's a leaning almost into the suffering or the challenge or the difficulty that it will bring. Sure. What does it mean in a, in a situation that you are oppressed by fear to be told not to be afraid? You know, what are the consequences? What are the things that he is reacting against that would cause him to be fearful? And what is the liberation of this angel saying there's no need to be afraid of this? Yeah. Right? That is explicit here. Yeah. I, um, I've been studying for the Bible content exam. And um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It's very challenging. They give you a lot of scripture and no context. And they say, so which book was this from? And, and, it, and this was one of the passages. And it says, she will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And I did not choose Matthew. I was like, that's in Matthew? That one came from this gospel? And it does. It's there right from the beginning. This one has a really clear explanation of why Jesus came in the first place. And, and, he tells, and the angel tells Jesus' parents before he's born. Yeah, that's a huge deal. Well, Joseph obviously came from the better part of society, and it wouldn't take much to put her like the woman at the well who had to go at noontime rather than when all the respectable women went. Yes. Now, I don't think that he is from high class because he was a carpenter. So, sure. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. But he wasn't wealthy, right? He was... So, um... Okay. I think for the sake of time... Do you have one more? Yes. The whole idea of God being present with us um, enters into that. Yes. Yes. For liberation theology, the point of the incarnation was to live with us, was to know our suffering and to accompany us in our suffering. 
Okay, so I hope you did that in two different colors because we're just going to keep adding them on. Um, <laughs> okay, so we're going to move on to feminist theology, uh, womanist theology, mujerist theology. Um, so a couple of people. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she was um, considered one of the mothers of feminist theology. Before there was the, con- the category of feminist theology, she wrote the woman's Bible. She's from the early 1800s. She was a suffragist, a, a abolitionist, um, and a feminist during that time. So uh, much later, and actually just recently passed, is Katie G. Cannon. She's a womanist theologian um, and ethicist. She was the first African-American woman ordained by the United Presbyterian Church in 1974. Um, and for the Mujeres, um, we have Ada, Ada Maria Isasi Diaz, who is a Catholic Cuban Mujerist theologian. And we'll break down what some of those terms mean in just a moment. So feminist theology is the umbrella term. If you are a woman and, well, not even if you're just a woman, but anyone who is considering scripture from a, from the perspective of female eyes, um, then you're doing feminist theology. So, um, the definition of feminist, according to Anne Carr, is that a feminist simply means someone, male or female, who recognizes that women, that women are fully human, acknowledges that imbalance and injustice that for centuries has, in church and society, characterized the situation of women and its commitment to righting that wrong. So feminist theology reads and interprets scripture through the lens and experience of women. Womanist theology is a type of feminist theology that reads and interprets scripture through the lens and experience of black women, specifically in the United States. There is some womanist theology that comes from Africa that that is is relatively new and in process. Um, Womanism came from the African-American experience originally. Um, And that was because in... In black theology, they weren't talking about the female perspective. It was there's a lot of sexism there still too, and the w- black women said, "What about me? Why I, this says nothing to my experience, or not nothing, but this doesn't reach the fullness of my experience." And they looked at the feminists, who were mostly white, and said, "You're talking about white middle class issues. That is different from my experience." And so womanism. It came as not a reaction against those, but in an, an and to that of like, yes, there is this feminist theology and there is black theology, but then there is womanism theology that or womanist theology that speaks to specifically my context um, and gave voice to a whole new group of theologians. So the, the mujerist theology is similar. Mujer means woman. And so this is also like, womanist theology, but the Latin American equivalent, um, and did the same thing of looking at feminist theology and said that it did not speak enough to the reality of the Latin American female experience, that they wanted to create their own, their own space for their, for their voices. Um, and so for feminist Christologies, they argue that Jesus and Jesus's ability to be savior does not reside in his maleness 
or in his lo- but instead in his loving liberating history in the midst of the power of evil and oppression this was a quote by elizabeth a johnson um and so and i thought that was really profound how much do we think of jesus purely in our in a physical form and yet for feminists um they talk about Jesus as as a much more eternal entity, um, the Jesus of yesterday, today, and forever kind of a thing. Um, so, and then Migliori, his name is hard to say, um, <laughs> um, said, while some feminist critics of the traditional Trinitarian language, sorry, while some feminists criticize it, Sorry, this is a weird thing. While some feminist critics of the traditional Trinitarian language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit change that it makes the Christian understanding of God inherently sexist, or charge that it makes the Christian understanding of God inherently sexist, other feminists identify the real problems as an un, um, as a univocal or literistic view of our language about God and the exclusive use of only one set of images for God. So this is really talking about um, that it's not just about using male pronouns for God that is what feminist theology is all about. Rather, it's about expanding our, our options for how to talk about God and understand God. Um, okay. Yeah, for the sake of time, we're going to stop there. Do you have any questions about the feminist theology? This is probably a little, you've probably had more access to feminist theology in this, this perspective. Yeah. The universality of God rather than the woman's perspective per se is what it sounds like to me. So specifically speaking about Christ, I would say that that that's relatively true, that there's been a lot of emphasis on, because Orthodox theologies put so much emphasis on Jesus as being a man, um, and actually most, um, the more I read in seminary, the more I hear it of like, the point of, of Jesus was to redeem Adam specifically, but um, and that it was Mary's role to redeem woman. Was, those are separate, right? And it's like, Mary's just a woman. So clearly, I, all I need is, is human redemption if Mary is the one to redeem me. But men need a divine redemption, right? They needed Jesus. So you can hear how that, that's problematic. So that's some of what feminists are reacting against, that Jesus came for everybody. Jesus redeems all of us because Jesus is neither, is not purely male because Jesus is greater than his human form. So, um, so I wouldn't say that it's just focused on the universality, but in talking about Jesus, I think that's the initial battle. Yeah. Um, anything else? Okay, let's go ahead and read the scripture from Matthew again, but this time considering the, the feminist perspective. what you have underlined so far. Matthew 